A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Welcome back, friends. This is episode seven, Religion, Private and Public. We are, once again, going to be visiting a couple of essays by P.T. Forces. One of them is titled Religion, Private and Public. The other one, The Conversion of the Good. I will drop the links in the description so you can read them. Uh, we will use them loosely to have a conversation about religion in the private and public domains. With me, as usual, is Ben, and this is Juan. Hi, Ben. How are you? Hey, good. Thanks. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I'm very excited about this week's episode because, you know, talking about justice in the public domain is one of my passions, and we get to do that today. So I'm pretty excited about that. Before we begin, I was wondering, Ben, if you would help us by giving us a little bit of context as to these two essays I mentioned. Why did P.T. Forsyth write them? When? And what is he getting at, more or less? Yeah, so Peter Forsyth, who has become one of my favorite theologians, mostly because uh, I haven't read very many and I read a lot of his stuff, <laughs> but I actually do like his um, his theology a lot. Anyway, he he is he died in 1921, so he died 100 years ago, uh, and that meant that towards the end of his career, he was he was um, he had just lived through the First World War, and he was a Scottish theologian, so he was in England, in Scotland for the First World War. Uh, well, one of the things about his theology that uh, that that gained him a lot of respect was that he, in a way, saw in advance the call it the collapse of the optimism that preceded the First World War. So, in uh, in British society and in European society before the First World War, there was a bit of an optimism about human progress and the things we can achieve, and the First World War was a bit of a uh, was a huge crisis or cataclysm in this sunny view of the future and of golden days to come. But his theology was ready for that. And I think that's one of the reasons why people appreciate him as he had a bit of a prophetic approach uh, where he could interpret these events a, a little bit better than maybe other people. Anyway, so today what we're interested in in these essays is the fact that he's writing around the time of World War I towards the end and he's really troubled by this problem, which is the First World War is largely between um, United Kingdom or England and Germany. And both of these countries are predominantly Protestant Christian nations. And in fact, Peter Forsyth got his theological education in Germany before the wars. And so he wants to know well, what accounts for the, for the futility of the gospel at this collective or international level. How can it be that two nations that have a that should have a deep understanding of the gospel at least who contain individuals who have a deep understanding of the gospel how can they nevertheless have this collective level or international level crisis of of uh, militarism and leading to to these cataclysms so you know how does that but this is what makes forsyth an interesting author among other things is that this is the kind of thing that's on his mind so 100 years later you've got to ask does he have anything to say to us today? Well, he can't talk to us directly, but can we draw something from the way he treated the First World War 
into the present and how we're dealing with the events in front of us right now. Yes, excellent. So yeah, I think we can definitely read his work. We can learn from it and then we can see how we can apply, how we can apply it to our own context. I mean, you're in Canada, I'm here in the US. My context is a little bit more insane than yours. <laughs> and so maybe the applications are a little bit more immediate, but yeah, I think we can learn quite a bit from this. Yeah. So today, today, what's really on my mind and I'm sure it's on yours as well is evangelicalism and, and the politics and, and sort of broken down politics um, of rioting and insurrection and such, <laughs> what is going on? What have they got? in their heads right now that's leading them to think that doing the sort of actions in Washington, D.C. on January 6th was a good idea. Uh, I was watching closely online as these events were unfolding, and you and I were sort of messaging each other, and I remember we, we were just struck by this person standing up a huge wooden cross mm -hmm. as if to declare that this is a, connected with their faith. Um, these actions that are being taken, these riots that were happening. And, uh, and I, I, it's, it's very troubling. Um, yeah. So let me read a quote from Forsyth in one of these two essays. Uh, and the theme, one of the themes we're looking at today is, is this connection between religion at the private level and, and, and sort of religion at a public level, which leads into politics. So Forsyth says, and he's thinking about the good German Christians and their, and nevertheless their milita milita militant and belligerent nation state. He says, surely a church which has so definitely rejected Christ's kingdom of God and so de-ethicized religion as to abet the official repudiation of morality for a nation has ceased to be a church and must become a pariah among the churches of the future righteousness. So those are strong words. Like as we look around the Christian landscape now, is there a form of Christianity that really deserves to become a pariah amongst the churches of the future righteousness? Well, you know what I think. So, mm -hmm. yeah, definitely. Uh, he also said the following: the first interest of history is the moral, and the moral is real. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, the, for Peter Forsyth, he uses the word moral a lot. And um, when we talk about experiential theology, we're talking about moral experience in terms of my obligations towards you, your obligations towards me, um, treating one another with justice and treating God with justice. And a good definition of justice is treating someone or something as befits its worth is the human posture towards God is treating God as befits God's worth. Um, and, and so history is this place where moral things happen, where, where people treat each other different ways, where people organize themselves in different ways, where they treat or mistreat one another as befits their worth. Um, yeah, so, so Christianity is not ahistorical. It's not eternal and abstracted. It really plays out in in, in history, which always involves the present moment. Now, in other news, I don't know if you mind me saying, but like you've just begun a new venture. Is this true? Do you want to mention that to us? 
Uh, sure. Well, I just uh, started seminary this week. Uh, to be honest, I should have done this like 20 years ago, but better late than never, I suppose. We'll see how it goes. Hopefully I will complete the program and get an MDiv. We'll see if it happens or not, but I'll do my best. Uh, so yeah, I'm taking a class on Pauline studies. So we're studying all the letters of Paul. And of course I like that class because I'm a huge Paul stan. I love the apostle Paul. And I've been reading four or five different books on Paul, looking at his life, his ministry, uh, the letters that he wrote. And in particular, we've been looking into the letter of Philemon, which is, if I'm not mistaken, his shortest. I mean, it's just a single chapter. It's a very short letter, but it's just, it's an explosive letter. It really is. And I'll give a little summary for maybe people who have never read the letter. The situation is as follows. So Paul is writing a letter to Philemon, who it seems to be is a church leader. And at the time, keep in mind that the Christians met in houses, right? So the church was probably meeting at his house. So this guy was either middle class or rich. So he had a big enough house to have Christians worship and meet there. Uh, he had slaves. And one of his slaves was named Onesimus which apparently means useful. Onesimus ran away from him and somehow ended up becoming a Christian with the apostle Paul. And he also ended up ministering to the needs of Paul while he was in imprisonment. And so at some point, Paul said to him, okay, well, you're a Christian now, great. Uh, but you know what? You ran away from your master and actually wanted to go back. I would, I would rather you... I would rather have you stay here, but I want to send you back and I'm going to write this letter or, or I'm going to dictate this letter and you give it to your master and then we'll see how things go. And in this letter, Paul doesn't outright say, okay, Philemon, you're a Christian. I'm a Christian. Onesimus is a Christian. That's it. We are done with slavery. We're abandoning this structure and getting rid of it altogether. He doesn't do that, nor does he explicitly command him as an apostle of Christ saying, hey, I have authority over you. I am telling you to do this. He doesn't do that. Uh, but he does write a letter. The letter is apparently read to the entire church. <laughs> so it's not exactly a private letter, I suppose. And uh, Paul says, hey, I want you to treat Onesimus as you would treat me. If he has done anything wrong, put it on my account, I will pay it as soon as I get out of prison. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm planning on coming by at some point. So have a room ready for me and I'm gonna check to see how things go. I am more than confident of your obedience and I know that you will do even more than I ask. And so, yeah, that's the situation in that letter. And I love it because it brings so many conflicts to light, right? Like the early church was very, consumed with the idea of the second coming like Jesus is just around the corner and they were not exactly very concerned with social issues like oh we need to abolish slavery we need to abolish child labor I mean I'm sure there were so many issues back in the day right but they were not that concerned about that they were really concerned for the kingdom the return of Christ and getting people ready for that but um, the gospel of grace 
really set the foundations, or we could say it sowed the seeds for the eventual abolition of slavery and many other evils. It was just a matter of time that if you really take the grace of God seriously, it's going to have to impact how you treat your fellow human beings, be they slaves, women, children, people from despised cultures, whoever they are. And so, yeah, I'm enjoying that class. And this is probably a little bit related to what's going on with what we're talking about here, because as you know, Christianity now has been around for 2000 years and Christianity has done a lot of good. It really has. It really has, but it has also done a lot of damage. And so we have a mixed legacy and we really have to think critically and carefully how we move forward. Any other thoughts on Philemon? No, that's really good. Uh, but I think it helps us remember, let's get the ground rules right here, is that um, when we're looking at Paul, we're looking at a man who's been transformed by the spirit of Jesus. Uh, and we're interested in that transformation. Um, we are not looking for Paul to be the one who gave us all the precedents we must follow. If Paul's, if the precedent we take from Paul is, you know, go soft on slavery, then we've kind of really misunderstood the value of reading Paul. He's not there to show us exactly what to do. Um, he's kind of there to show us what kind of thing is possible when we are also led by the spirit. I would say something like that. Yeah. And so sometimes on these social issues, I hear a Christian say, well, I believe that the biblical view is such and such. And I really, I really get frustrated when I hear that because that's just not good enough. Um, that's just not good enough. We need to do the right thing, whether it be biblical or not. Uh, and when we read the Bible, we see people trying to do the right thing by the grace of God, but, but with, with, uh, within their context and only to a certain extent. So we can always do better as time goes on. Yeah. Okay. Well, so the essay that we're talking about from Peter Forsyth is religion, um, religion, private and public. And the problem, like we said, is, is how can, so Peter Forsyth thought that the German state in World War I had done a great deal of evil on the world stage. And you and I were just sort of frantically browsing Wikipedia for history before we recorded. And I think we'll just leave alone the detail of what Germany actually did. But suffice to say, there was an invasion of France, which led to one thing led to another, and then we've got trench warfare and so on. But anyway, Forsyth really felt that Germany had failed at a moral level, at the collective level of the state, that they'd become a, a nation that worshipped power and rallied around sort of an absolute leader, their Kaiser. Uh, and in World War II, we know that this went went down a second time in, in many ways. Okay. Um, I think at one point he calls he calls him an agent of Satan, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. And so part of me wonders, is Forsyth, is this his considered view? And is he really correct? Or is he just, he's getting swept up in British patriotism in the middle of a war? And I, I, I want him to be a level head here, but, but it would take a bit more research to, to make sure that that was the case. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah. So let's just let's just assume for a second, like that from his perspective, what he's saying is that there's such a thing as a nation full of Christians 
that does very ungodly things at the collective political level and at the international level. Um, I don't think any of us have a hard time believing that this is possible. It happens all the time. Uh, and it's happening and, and it's happening. It's, it can happen right now as well. So, so that's what we want to understand. That's what we want to appreciate is the idea that private religion, like a religion of church, a nation of church going Christians, a nation of evangelicals, or at least evangelicals with a swing vote in the electorate. Um, there's no guarantee of a public righteousness. And, uh, and I don't know, do you agree with Forsyth here? Or do you feel like, what do you think about this? <laughs> Well, he's, he's absolutely right. I wish it were that easy. Like, look, the more church-going Christians you have in your nation, the more millions of church-going Christians you have in the nation, the more Christian the nation will be. I wish that were the case. And I think in some ways it is in some nations, a lot more than others. But for example, here in the U.S., we have millions and millions and millions of Christians that do go to church. But the church has utterly failed to bring about what I would say is needed Christian legislation. So for example, we do not have guaranteed healthcare. It's absolutely bizarre and it's ungodly and it's, it's unbelievable because we absolutely have the resources. Why can't we have this, right? Now, to answer that question, of course, I realized that uh, a lot of politics has to be talked about movements. A lot of people have been fighting for these things, but there hasn't been a breakthrough. Why not? Well, I think that evangelicalism in particular is preventing a lot of these things from happening because in evangelicalism, religion is private. It's about you getting your sins forgiven, you going to heaven, and you're not really that concerned for bringing about justice in your society and giving glory to God by making sure that your society is as just as possible. So absolutely. So it's interesting that in Canada where we do have um, sort of public health care system, the people who pioneered that um, we're, we're, we're largely driven by their Christian convictions in a remarkable way. So um, although Canada is a very secular society, uh, there, there, there has been fruit born in politics um, by people who, were, who felt that their religious convictions in terms of like treating everybody with dignity and respect to the point where we take care of them when they're sick, um, they made that into law over time. And, uh, and um, Anyway, it's a miracle. It's a miracle that it happened. And, and honestly, it's one of the things that Canadians value most about their society now is this, is this universal health care. We have lots of complaints about it and how it works, and we wish it worked better. Um, but every election we have, it's always like one of the top issues. Like what are we going to do to improve or to build up this system that we all, that we all value so much now that it's here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, okay, well... One of the things that Peter Forsyth is emphasizing when he talks about Germany in World War I is the idea of sacrifice. And lots of people in his day, I guess, they wanted to value the sacrifices of the soldiers. So they would say that, you know, the Germans have fought valiantly and we honor their sacrifices and the, and the British and the Allies and they fought valiantly and we honor their sacrifices. 
And Peter Forsyth is not going to have any of that. He doesn't see any moral value to sacrifice unto itself. Um, he thinks that it's quite possible to sacrifice uh, in such a way that you're fighting for the kingdom of God and in such a way that you're fighting against it. And it, and sacrifice itself has no moral value to him. And I think that's really interesting. Um, I think we'll bring it up, that up a little bit more later. Uh, but one of the things he really observes is that if you have a religion of private worship, where it's all about your private piety or even the local church piety, uh, that's totally compatible at a practical level with worship of power at the public level, where pious Christians, they have this tendency to line up behind the strong man. And in his case, it was the German Kaiser of, of World War I. Uh, this is very true. Um, so why is it? I mean, this is a big question, but I think you were mentioning something to me earlier about Luther and the two kingdoms or something. Why, how is it that people can split their faith into a private flavor and a public flavor? Yeah. Again, I'm no expert on Lutheran theology or Reformed theology for that matter. <laughs> but uh, I have read uh, different theologians that have said that one of the issues in Germany, certainly, one of the factors in bringing about everything that occurred with the Holocaust, with the world wars, is uh, an idea of Lutheran theology. They call it the two kingdom theory, I believe, two kingdom theology. And so the idea is as follows, God rules the world. He rules uh, the secular, social dimension through the state and he rules the spiritual, uh, religious domain through the church. And so the church's job is to be a good church, be the best church it can be. And the job of the state is to, of course, be the best state it can be as well. And so, I mean, that sounds good in practice, but scholars would say that what happened is people just uh, became convinced that the only thing they should care about is the religious and the spiritual. Because I mean, I'm not in politics. I'm not a politician. I don't work for the government other than paying my taxes and you know, obeying the basic laws. I mean, that's not really my business. My business is the gospel, right? And that is not good. That is not good. Um, Reformed theology is a little bit different. In Reformed theology, the idea is that Christ, through his ascension, has been exalted. And even now, he's already ruling the world, even if we're waiting for the fullest manifestation. And so Christ rules everything. The politicians are accountable to Christ. The church is, of course, accountable to Christ. And I'm sure you've heard this quote uh, by a Dutch theologian. I forgot which one. Kuiper. Yeah, that says that, you know, there is not an inch on earth over which Christ does not say it is mine. So Christ's sovereignty over the world is total. And so Reformed Christians uh, want to say that it is the church's duty to glorify God and also the state's duty to glorify God by bringing about the, the just society whose, whose job it is to, to bring. 
And so there were theological issues that facilitated what happened in Germany. Now, can we prove, can we prove that if the Germans had, you know, a, a view more like the reform that things wouldn't have happened? I don't think we can, but maybe it would have helped. I'm not sure. But what we do know is that even in Germany, like you said, there were people who dissented and were not happy with the German church allowing Hitler to become its pope eventually, well, really, their supreme this leader. A different war, by the way, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, right. yeah, they are related to each other. Forsyth <laughs> didn't live long enough to learn about the second war. Yeah. Yes. And so uh, a combination of reform and Lutheran theologians came together and they wrote this declaration like right after Hitler took over power. It's called the Barman Declaration. Okay. And I'll just read a few of the statements that they wrote. And obviously, whoever read this at the time, they know exactly what they're talking about. And even now, it's pretty obvious. So some of the things that they believe and some of the things that they reject. I'll read the rejections because those make it more clear. So they said, we reject the false doctrine that the church could and should recognize as a source of its proclamation beyond and besides this one word of God, yet other events, powers, historic figures and truths as God's revelation. We reject the false doctrine that there could be areas of life in which we would not belong to Jesus Christ, but to other lords, areas in which we would not need justification and sanctification through him. We reject the false doctrine that the church could have permission to hand over the form of its message and of its order to whatever it itself might wish or to the vicissitudes of the prevailing ideological and political conventions of the day. Two more. We reject the false doctrine that apart from this ministry, the church could and could have permission to give itself or allow itself to be given special leaders. They put the German term Führer vested with ruling authority. We reject the false doctrine that beyond its special commission, the state should and could become the sole and total order of human life and so fulfill the vocation of the church as well. We reject the false doctrine that with human vainglory, the church could place the word and work of the Lord in the service of self-chosen desires, purposes, and plans. So it seems like if I'm, I've actually never read that document before. Um, so my first impression is that in the context of the Second World War is that there's this temptation in Second World War Germany to um, to for the church to embrace the totalitarian political reality, to to find a way to allow for private piety to worship Jesus privately and to worship totalitarian power publicly. And the Barman Declaration that you just read essentially says this can't be done. Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I mean, that's what we're trying to talk about today is private religion and public religion. Uh, how can we, how can they be integrated or why must they be integrated rather than broken into a worship of Jesus in private and a worship of power 
in public. Um, okay, well, I had some thoughts this week about about these events. Um, one of the thoughts I had is that, unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, the experience of being evangelical um, is sometimes an experience of being exposed to a lot of disinformation. Um, how can I put this nicely? If you have, uh, if if your experience of going to church is to is to be is to sit through a sermon every week and maybe a Bible study during the week as well. And, and to be part of this community that, that believes these very specific and quirky things, like different than the other Christian churches in town, for instance. Um, and it's all sort of based on biblicism, a belief that in biblical inerrancy or belief that your pastor is the best pastor or whatever. Uh, it seems that a lot of evangelical private practice is just grooming people to believe whatever a strong leader tells them. This is very disturbing. And so when I've seen, when I've been watching closely in recent years, when I've seen so many evangelicals line up behind their strong man, and Peter Forsyth saw the same thing in the First World War, and Karl Barth saw the same thing in the Second World War, it's so disturbing. Um, we need a kind of private religion that does not groom us to line up behind a strong man. It doesn't allow us to allegedly worship Jesus privately and power publicly. Um, and uh, part of worshiping power is, is this being susceptible to this disinformation, I think. Yeah. Another thing I was thinking, you can cut me off at any time here. Uh, another thing I was thinking is that this, this attitude amongst the, in the evangelical world of like, just be biblical. We're just being biblical. Whatever we believe that's biblical. I mean, that is just the same to me at the moment as, as the classic, I was just following orders excuse that I've, that we've all learned to condemn mm -hmm. in our post-World War II reality. Like nobody in their right mind who's taken a high school history class anymore believes that it's appropriate to say, I was just following orders when you're on trial years later. Mm -hmm. We, if orders in any organization are always, um, are always subject to the clause lawful, they have to be lawful orders. <laughs> and, and yeah. And so, and so I just fear that this attitude of, I'm just a biblical Christian. This is a biblical church. We believe biblical things. is just another version of grooming people to be just following orders. And, you need to have the courage to do what's right, even if it's not biblical. Even if Paul in Philemon um, doesn't say slavery is a, something that needs to be abolished, doesn't mean we're just going to be biblical and follow him down that road. We're going to go past him, and we're going to condemn slavery today. Um, we're not going to just be biblical. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We have to follow their footsteps and not be like robots that just try to do exactly as they did, right? Yeah, and this next next thought I had before we move on is um, this, this is the Experiential Theology podcast, one of many podcasts named Experiential Theology. And we're talking about experiential theology. We're talking about um, a faith that 
draws on an experiential foundation. And that's an experiential foundation of the goodness of God, an idea. And, and it would be a moral experience, as Peter Forsyth would say. Uh, and so we're not just being biblical. We, the goal in the Christian life is to come to know the character of God as revealed in Jesus and as revealed in the present through the spirit of Jesus. Uh, and as we have access to this character of God, we have an evidential foundation for what God is like, what God cares about. We have a conscience that grows stronger and more sensitive to doing the right thing. Um, rather than searing our conscience so that we can just be biblical, despite what we know is true, um, we want to have a more sensitive conscience. We want to be more sensitive to right and wrong. We want to be more sensitive to whether we're harming our neighbor. And uh, anyway, if, we, if we're missing that, then the so-called faith is just grooming us for whatever the next big lie is. Uh, a just biblical faith, biblical Christianity, it's such a waste. It's just grooming for the next big lie. We need to be in touch with the spirit of Christ in the present moment um, in continuity with the Apostle Paul and others who have manifested the, the power of the spirit in their lives in the past. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, let's continue. Uh, I know PT Forces spends quite a bit of time talking about the ministry of Jesus when he was trying to get Israel to listen to his message. Ultimately, we know they rejected him and they crucify him. But before that, PT Forces said that in his ministry, Jesus was not just working with individuals, right? like a lot of modern religion. We just reach out to individuals, whoever's interested and that's about it. But in the ministry of Jesus, his focus was not primarily on individuals. His focus was on the nation as a whole. So what can we say about this? Yes, this is really important. Um, this is really important. So I'll skip ahead a little bit to talk about the idea of collective versus individual uh, sin and righteousness. So for Peter Forsyth, he thinks that the way he reads the New Testament and, and the Bible, and he, he sees it that uh, in this theology, God is concerned with Israel uh, as a people, as a, as a nation. Uh, it's not that, it's not that God is, is concerned with, with a vast cloud of individuals. God is concerned with all of the connections between those individuals as well. This is how, this is where the fruit of the vineyard comes from. In the parable of the vineyard, Israel is the vineyard. God is the one who owns the vineyard and the leaders are the tenants who are responsible to bear fruit. Well, what is that fruit? If, if Israel is the vineyard, it's Israel is not just the people, it's all of their collective actions together. It's all of how they treat one another. It's, um, it's how they interpret uh, the tragedies that, uh, that fall upon each other. Like, are they taking care of their sick? Are they taking care of those in need? Uh, and, and there's a tremendous um, Hebrew Bible witness to God's concern for, for the poor and the vulnerable in a society. Uh, I think that nobody puts it better in the modern world than Abraham Heschel, as far as I've read in his book, The Prophets and in other places. Mm -hmm. That God is 
it, the God of Israel is a God who's deeply concerned with how one person treats another person, not has not in the interior lives of two individuals, but in their exterior relation to one another. Um, so there's this collective aspect to God's posture towards the world. And so what Peter Forsyth is doing is he's appreciating this and he's saying that Jesus came to Israel to challenge the nation, to offer reconciliation to the nation. And because that nation is not a democracy, um, Israel goes wherever the leaders go. Israel goes wherever the high priest points them. Israel goes wherever the, the priestly class points them. And so Jesus was seriously interested in, in challenging the, the religious leaders of the people. And of course, he, um, he loved and, and dealt with uh, and ministered to anyone who crossed his path. But he poured out his life in a decisive confrontation with the religious leaders of the people. That's what he chose to do. He could have spent many more years on the peripheries in the desert ministering to more and more people, but he reached a point where enough is enough and he was going to walk to Israel and deliver basically a challenge that they were very unlikely to accept. And, and he poured out his life uh, thinking that that was worth it. So, so that's a big... Um, This should remind us that that Christian faith is not really about individuals. It's about collections of people and their collective communion with one another and the collective society that they live in together. It, it's at the very level of the of the ministry of Jesus. Yeah, and I think that's something that we need. I like how you mentioned the importance of the Hebrew Bible, because again, we know that there are so many Christians who try to be red letter Christians or maybe New Testament Christians, but we need to, I mean, honestly, we need to be a whole Bible Christians. We do need to pay attention to the prophets. We do need to pay attention to the Old Testament, the Tanakh, the Torah, whatever term you want to use. It's, it's absolutely essential. And if we seek to be just red letter Christians or New Testament Christians, we definitely run the risk of ignoring the message of the Old Testament. The message of the Old Testament is, of course, that God wants us to be just to one another. God wants us to love one another. And he shows us how by taking care of the least, by taking care of the poor, by making sure that we prevent the wealthy and the powerful from taking over society. And uh, I think it's, it's very important that we do that. And Jesus and John the Baptist as well, that is how they minister. That's how their ministry function. They were dealing with the whole nation, not just pockets of individuals in this district or the other. I think that's very powerful uh, because nowadays we're more connected than ever. And, you know, you live in Canada, I live here in the United States. We have to speak about theology, about the gospel in such a way that we make it relevant to what's going on with the nation. The gospel truly 
understood is always relevant. And if it doesn't seem relevant, then there's something wrong with your gospel. I think it's as simple <laughs> as that. So that's our next point here. We have, we got two questions that we want to talk about a little bit. And this goes back to what Peter Forsyth was frustrated about. He's like, why is this gospel impotent to prevent this international calamity of the first world war? And we are just asking ourselves the same thing right now. Why is this gospel that the evangelicals claim to possess impotent to prevent all of the strange things that are happening and the tremendous amount of disinformation um, and the, and just the bald worship of power and maintaining uh, the status quo. <sighs> yeah. Okay. So our question then is, first of all, and we're going to ask them both and then we'll try to answer them in different ways. But the first question is what is the revelation of God in Christ? Uh, and then the second thing is, well, what is this revelation to the nations or to a nation as opposed to the individual? Uh, let me try to answer the, the first one. You mentioned red letter Christianity. The revelation of God in Christ is essentially the whole life of Jesus. But it climaxes and reaches its clearest or most profound um, moment in his obedience unto death, his actions. And so if you want to ask, what is the revelation of God in Christ? Many Christians will say, oh, I'm going to flip to Matthew 5 and I'll read the Sermon on the Mount. And because that pa those passages are very, they come across as very impractical, very apolitical. It leads people to think, you know, if I'm really going to obey Matthew chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount, these red letters, I'm going to basically have to withdraw from society to some extent. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm going to treat it like a new set of policies or laws to follow um, rather than a life driven by the, by the spirit. Anyway, the Sermon on the Mount is a wonderful and difficult thing for us to interpret, but it's also a stumbling block in this sense because the greater revelation in the Sermon on the Mount is the actual death of Christ, his obedience unto death. And not just his obedience and not just the sacrifice, but the fact that he was so swept up with his vision of the goodness of God and the character of God and the importance of challenging Israel at the collective level with that very goodness and character. that he was willing to, to be put to death for that. So, so when I... Anyway, first question, you always have, we always have to go to the cross and we got to peel back the suffering. We've got to peel back the pure sacrifice. We got to even peel back the pure obedience and see what was it that drove Jesus to do those things. And that was his fellowship with God, his appreciation for the character of God and his vision of the goodness of God. Um, and if we could catch that ourselves, it would, there's no way we could, leave it out of public life and restrict it to private life. Yeah. yeah. So the second question, it says, what is this revelation to the nations or a nation as opposed to the individual? Hmm. So as opposed to the individual, I think that it's safe to say that in the evangelical world, um, 
there's a deep focus on individual soteriology or individual doctrine of how a person is saved. There's a lot of focus on explaining how a person is saved. Um, and we've talked about the atonement in previous episodes. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, sometimes it becomes a matter of if you believe our explanation of how the cross saves people, then it will also save you, which is another way of saying, if you believe our specific absurdities, then you'll also be saved. (laughs) Um, And this is really like to miss the, it's to miss the revelation of God in Christ. If you're focusing at the individual level, and if all you get out of the cross is individual soteriology, then you haven't really seen it. So that still leaves us with a problem. How do we go beyond that to the collective level? Yeah. And I think the problem is compounded because the church is not a nation, even though the church is in all nations. Right. So the church is not a nation, but I think it's pretty clear that God wants the church to be a powerful, powerful influence, a light, an example to the nation or the nations in which you live. And God wants us to not just worship, pray, and do these religious things, which are fine, but to give glory to God by doing things that people would say, well, that's the social gospel, right? Which is, we have to love one another. We have to love other people, also non-Christians, other Christians. And we have to do all that we can to bring about the kingdom of God here on earth as much as possible. We we realize and we understand that ultimately only God can do that, (laughs) at least on a permanent, complete basis. But we can make this world a better place and our gospels our theologies our liturgies really should compel us to move in these directions yes yeah um another theme i thought of along these lines of interpreting the cross and the revelation of god at the collective level is that Often the cross of Christ, and I think I've already tried to say this in some ways, the cross of Christ is seen as the beacon of sacrifice. Like, what does it mean to sacrifice? Well, look at Jesus. He sacrificed, so you can sacrifice too. And um, this past, like, couple of weeks, watching CNN or something, I've seen a lot of people who are willing to pour out their life for nothing, for nothing of value, for a completely misguided and ridiculous and, and like condemnable reasons to pour out their life. Um, and honestly, a couple of them did. So those are not sacrifices worth honoring. The sacrifice of Christ does nothing to exalt the sacrifice of, of the fool. Um, it does nothing to, to, to sanctify the sacrifice of a fool. Jesus was swept up in the goodness of God and that drove him into a position that required sacrifice. But it's the goodness of God, this connection to the character of God, that makes the sacrifice of Jesus have any value. 
And that goes the same for our sacrifices as well. Uh, so as we look at our society and we call on people to sacrifice or we see sacrifice and we thank people for their sacrifice, we really just need to ask sacrifice for what? And was it worth it? Did it have anything to do with the character of God? Or was it something that we actually wouldn't recommend anyone make any further sacrifice in that direction? Um, and often, like, let's say, let's things are, let's hopefully things don't get out of hand, but we're, let's just think back to the first and second world war. Often a totalitarian leader will call on people to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be, Christians should not be people who are conditioned to sacrifice without question. The sacrifice must have value relative to the goodness of God. Yeah. Okay, so uh, recently I read a book by John Barclay about the gift of God, right? It's about grace. It's called the gift, Paul and the gift. I don't even remember, but it, it's, it's about the language of grace and how the words that Paul used for grace or gift, caris, right? And others, they have multiple meanings or dimensions through which you can interpret them. And one of them is called the incongruence of the gift of God. So in other words, the gift of God is just, it's so tremendous. It's so unbelievable. God has done so much. And he has done so much for all of us, right? And so what happens when you are really uh, overcome by a sense of wonder at the gift of God, the gift of salvation, the gift of reconciliation and redemption. Well, if we are truly grasped by the gospel of grace, this should abolish any type of cost system politics, right? So we would not tolerate a society where we have slavery. We would not tolerate a society where the government uh, deals one way with a particular group of people and it deals with another way with a, a separate group of people. So in other words, if as Christians, we are truly immersed in this gospel of grace, we are going to treat everybody like what they are. And who are they? Ultimately, they are people for whom Christ died and who, in one way or another, are either recipients or future recipients of the grace of God in at least some fashion. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. The, um, in a nutshell, in the New Testament, what seems to be happening is that the Christians are constantly trying to keep up with the gift of God, which is leading, which is which is which is the spirit of Jesus, which is leading the way. Uh, so the the first church is predominantly Jewish Christians or Jewish believers. They're not called Christians yet. Um, in Jerusalem, and slowly but surely, the spirit of God becomes present and manifest in awkward other types of people like Samaritans or people in the diaspora. And eventually in a, in the household of a Roman centurion, Cornelius there's like a second Pentecost in Cornelius's house. Um, and then the ministry of Paul, the apostle is going 
to all sorts of people from all sorts of nations. And they're all receiving the same gift of God. And really like the big problem in the new Testament in the Pauline epistles is like, is um, how do we make sense of this gift being given to all sorts of people that we weren't expecting it to be given to. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, just like you said, so, so at a collective level, you, you don't see that when you're just thinking about the individual gospel, you need to think about the gospel as a gift given to two people, at least two people. And the fact that it doesn't care about all of the things that humans find significant differences between those two people that can be borne out at the level of politics and public religion and collective righteousness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we've been saying this on and on again. Um, private religion, worshiping Jesus, and sadly, public religion is often just worshiping power. That's not possible if you understand the cross, because the cross of Jesus is an attempt to employ naked power on behalf of humans to crush um, to crush the character of God as manifest in, a per in the person of Jesus. Paul talks about the powers of the world trying to crucify Christ, not realizing what they're doing. And that's because um, the cross appeared like a defeat. It appeared to be proof that God was not with Jesus. And the doctrine of the resurrection is that God has vindicated Jesus and says that the one that you have rejected has become the cornerstone. And so it's just not possible for Christians to understand the cross and worship power at the collective level, because the cross is a beacon forever and ever, amen, that naked power is immoral, that might does not make right, that God has chosen the least and not the greatest, that God is with the crucified one and not the ones with the power to crucify. Mm -hmm. Now, does yeah. this mean we we say power is necessarily evil and we take a passive approach to the world where we never do anything where we abdicate any power we have, where we don't act on any authority that we've been given for a season, say as an elected official, or does it mean that we handle power with a great deal of humility, knowing that it doesn't count for as much as we think in, in the divine economy? Uh, these are questions to debate between Anabaptists and, uh, and others, for instance, but um, but the, the cross definitely says something about power and it just totally rules out naked worship of power at the public level. Yeah. yeah. And if, you know, if you're riding and bringing huge crosses to like intimidate people and threaten people, then, I mean, you're definitely doing something wrong. I mean, you might as well be Constantine, right? And put crosses on your shields and say we're going to conquer in this symbol i mean you might as yes. well yeah i was thinking constantine as well yeah yeah mm -hmm. absolutely okay so let's now talk about jesus and paul a lot of people say you know the ministry of jesus and paul are incompatible because jesus was all about the kingdom of god just look at the lord's prayer he's all about the kingdom of god and paul on the other hand he's all about redemption reconciliation uh the exalted christ two separate things incompatible 
Now, what, what can we say about that? Well, Peter Forsyth says in one of these essays here that um, for Paul, the exalted Christ takes the place of the kingdom of God. And I think this is an interesting observation. Um, now, I, I think that the problem is often that we can think of the kingdom of God either too concretely or too abstractly. So the, if the kingdom of God is in your mind, very concrete, um, we got a crude picture of it where you say the kingdom of God is a kingdom and, and it's also about God and God is omnipotent and Kings have power. So really it's a kingdom in which the church has power. And then, and then you have this private piety, public power worship uh, dynamic happening. And so on the other hand, you can have people who spiritualize the kingdom and say, no, 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 it's politics is dirty. Public life is dirty. The kingdom of God is clean and abstracted from those. It's about spiritual things. It's about character. Anyway, it's a kingdom not of this world. Quoted Christ. Boom. Game over. So we've got to find something in the middle. And I, I don't know. I feel... I do feel much more comfortable thinking about the exalted Christ rather than the kingdom of God as, as we see in Paul. Um, because I think that we can think of, we can safely think of the kingdom of God as the realm. And I think I'm borrowing from Dallas Willard here in some sense, but the kingdom of God is wherever people are obedient to the spirit of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's it. And that obedience is super practical. It's at the level of how we treat one another. It's the level of ignoring any caste system that is in our particular society. It's at the level of realizing that the gift of God is given to people that I find strange, and but God finds them suitable. Um, it's at the level of collective action to improve the life of our neighbor. Um, yeah, the kingdom of God is obeying the spirit of the exalted Jesus. Yes, and I mean, pretty much all Christians understand that ultimately God and God alone can set up the kingdom of God on earth, right? Like we we all believe that, that, you know, Jesus will return and he's going to finish the job, if you will. But in the meantime, we do all understand that the church has a job. As Christians, we have a job. And yeah, I think it's definitely helpful to think of Jesus exalted, and giving his marching orders for us, which is to make disciples of people, to teach them, to love people, to serve people, to do all those things that, you know, we find through the commandments and the gospels and the epistles. But I think it's also important to just remember the very first generation of Christians, they really believe with an immediate sense of expectation. Like Jesus is just around the corner. Any minute now, he's gonna be here and the kingdom of God is gonna set up, is going to be set up. 2000 years have gone by. We can no longer be that generation. We cannot function like they function. And obviously we can say, well, he's obviously 2000 years closer, right? Which I suppose he is. But what we have to do is to realize that we have to take this world seriously. We cannot allow our theology to turn us into people that don't care about the creation, that don't care about our neighbors because quote unquote, God is gonna redeem everything or God is on the throne 
or God is coming back and he'll fix everything. That is not how we're supposed to do things. Even if ultimately that is correct, our job is to do as much as we can now. And I think it's important to remember that, again, the witness of the prophets, the witness of the prophets is just so powerful. We have to pay more, more attention to that. And we really have to learn a lot more from Judaism. I think Judaism really has so many riches that Christians can benefit from when it comes to what it means to bear witness to God by how we live in this world. I would also say that um, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, or the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of the exalted Christ, which Paul uses in place of the kingdom of God, is described in Paul's works as the first fruits, as the sort of the guarantee of things to come. Uh, and I, and I think that um, I think I can criticize this thing called Christian passivity, which is a which is a an excuse to kind of retreat from the public to the private sphere to say that, oh, we only expect God to bring the kingdom ultimately. Well, of course, what does obeying Jesus really look like? It means, number one, being challenged by the spirit of Jesus in your conscience to do something. And number two, being empowered by the spirit of Jesus to do that very thing. And what we supply is the obedience, the agreeing to do the thing by the power of the spirit that we've been uh, commanded to do, which is basically going to boil down to, to love your neighbor at some level. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there's absolutely no excuse for Christians to wait and see what God does in the world. God is doing what is God is doing in the world through those who obey God. That's how it happens. This is the secret. The power is available. The command is present. Um, the spirit is alive and well and challenging us today. And if we want the kingdom of come, we just, the kingdom to come, the best strategy is just to obey the spirit and love your neighbor. And I think that uh, I say this to Christians who are humming and hawing about politics all the time. I say politics is just the business of loving your neighbor or failing to love your neighbor. It's the way to systematize and organize whether or not you're going to love your neighbor. And so how can we, how can we retreat from that? Uh, of course, politics is often consumed with the worship of power, and we must reject that. Um, but we can't retreat from the business of loving our neighbor. We can't, if it's important enough for the church to organize a charity to, to take care of it, it's also important enough for the church to organize and make it a political reality. Uh, in Canada, the churches are out of the business of providing medical care because we have a universal healthcare system now, because it was that important. Um, yeah, I mean, in the United States, GoFundMe is basically the provider of medical care in the United States, as far as I can tell. <laughs> that or going bankrupt and selling your house and just figuring it out from there. It's the American way, apparently. Hopefully not forever, but, but yeah, anyway, so uh yeah it, it i'm not sure what else to say other than yeah the kingdom of god we need to separate it from the worship of power we can't accept this two kingdoms approach uh that we've been criticizing here the separation of public and private religion uh, all religion 
for Christians should be obedience to the spirit of the risen Christ and empowered by that same spirit in the public and in the private arena. Yeah. And I like uh, something that you wrote here. The fruit of the vineyard that Jesus sought is a just society. I think that's just so powerful. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Experiential Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here. You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology.